Good morning. During a British conference on comparative religion, experts had gathered from around the world to discuss and debate what made Christianity unique from all other religions. One by one, every proposed uniqueness uh, was eliminated as a possibility. Some claimed that the resurrection was the only unique element to Christianity, others the incarnation. But both of these elements can be found in other religions besides Christianity. Then C.S. Lewis strolled in. He had heard the fierce debates occurring from down the hall and wanted to know what it was about. After being informed of their debate as to what made Christianity unique, he answered, oh, that's easy, it's grace. And after further discussion, all of the scholars agreed. Grace, God's unmerited favor towards us, it's what makes Christianity unique. And as Christians, we have been chosen to be different. Grace is a theme prevalent all throughout the book of 1 Peter. I believe a good reason for this is that Peter had been shown what grace looked like throughout his entire time with Jesus. Peter denied Jesus three times and was still fully forgiven, restored, and chosen to do a great work in the church. In the verse we will be looking at together today, 1 Peter 2.9, God's amazing grace towards us is clear to see. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. On top of the incredible grace of God, allowing us to be members of his royal priesthood, this verse gives us, as Gentiles and Christians, so much hope. We can now be a part of God's holy nation. We are a special people for his own possession. How incredible is that? I find that in the present times, unfortunately, we lose the true meaning of hope and the work that hope should do in our lives. As Warren Wearsby wrote in his book on 1 Peter, confident hope gives us the encouragement and enablement we need for daily living. It does not put us in a rocking chair while we complacently await the return of Jesus Christ. Instead, it puts us in the marketplace on the battlefield, where we keep on going when the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. Hope is not a sedative. It is a shot of adrenaline, a blood transfusion. Our hope that we have in Jesus should both calm our worries, but also energize us to keep serving the Lord without fear. Often my mind can be tempted to either be too complacent, God's in control, so what does it matter, or too worried, Christianity is going to be destroyed if we don't turn this culture around. The actions of the early Christians Peter wrote this letter to give a great example of how we should live knowing that God is in control. The early church faced an enormous amount of persecution in their lives, first from the Jews and religious leaders, and then from Rome. Peter himself would be executed by Nero just years after finishing this book. Despite the danger and persecution, Early Christians boldly shared the gospel with everyone that they met, willing to die because of their confident hope, faith, and knowledge of an eternity with God. I pray that we as Christians would have that same mindset and be willing to, do, to endure scorn and persecution for God. As I began to study these verses, I was shocked by the incredible amount of hidden meaning contained inside. 
This passage is quoting other verses from the Old Testament, written about Israel, and applying them to all Christians, both Jew and Gentile. These verses are Exodus 19.6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And Deuteronomy 7.6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. We as Gentiles now have the ability to be a part of God's chosen people. No longer were the Israelites the only chosen race. Now, according to this verse, every true believer in Christ is a part of a special group. This was a huge change for many Jews who before would not even eat in the same house as a Gentile. Now, with this message of unity, they were expected to form a new race, a race under God, rather than one based on ethnicity. Racial conflicts are prevalent in this day and age, in America, but much more so all around the world. This unified body that this verse is calling us to is a powerful way that we can stand out from the rest of the world. That does not mean every church needs to follow the same procedures and rituals, but it does mean that all of our end goals should be the same. Diversity in practices is good. If every Christian acted the exact same way, that would be uniformity, not unity. Unity is being brought together for one common purpose. Often we see, we see unity in times of persecution and distress. I think of the resurgence of patriotism after 9-11, also in the community of the church in heavily persecuted nations. Everyone is brought together for one purpose, even if they have different ways of accomplishing that purpose. As I was researching unity within the church, I saw a great analogy showing what this unity should look like. We as the church are like builders building a house, with the house in this example being the kingdom of God. If we do not keep the correct blueprints of the kingdom of God in our minds and instead are following different blueprints, the house is going to look disordered and ugly. If we have the same blueprint though, and simply different ideas on how exactly to go about building the house, the finished product will be both unified and beautiful. In order to have the proper blueprint of the kingdom of God in our minds, we can look to what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9, because it helps us all to stay on the same page. If we remember these truths, staying unified with one another will be so much easier. Let's look back to our verse and see how we are chosen to be different, yet unified. The verse begins by saying, we are a chosen race. We did not choose God, God chose us. This truth can be seen all throughout the New Testament. I think of John 15, 16, where Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Unfortunately, I think this truth can be watered down with our arguments over the concept of free will. But regardless of what your view is on that issue, God chose to send his son for our salvation, and he has been putting people and events in our lives to draw us near to him. All of this he is doing simply because of his love and mercy, rather than out of necessity. The knowledge that God shows us is so important to remember. This is not a one-sided relationship where we strive to know God as well as we can, but God is uninterested in a relationship with us. Quite the opposite, really. God is deeply interested in our relationship with him 
and is constantly giving us opportunities to grow in our knowledge of him. We are a chosen race. Next, Peter tells us that we are a royal priesthood. I just love that imagery, but what does it mean? We all should be, as New Testament believers, the continuation of the priests from the Old Testament. While we are not going to be offering any literal animal sacrifices, which I am thankful for, we should still have a holy, priestly demeanor. I don't know about the rest of you, but when I envision a priest, I get the image of someone self-righteous, sort of like a Pharisee. But rather than being self-righteous priests, as can be the temptation, we can follow the example of our high priest, Jesus, who washed the feet of his disciples and sacrificed himself for our sins. In the verse we looked at earlier, Exodus 19.6, the ancient Israelites, just freed from the slavery they had been trapped in for hundreds of years, were told by God that they were to be a kingdom of priests. This statement was likely shocking to them after spending so much time in Egypt and being around the priests of the Egyptian gods. Those priests had tremendous status and power. To even suggest that they, escaped slaves, could become priests or fulfill priestly responsibilities would have seemed inconceivable. Many Israelites did not follow the call to be priests, thinking themselves inadequate for the role. But what was God really asking them to do as priests? Eugene Peterson, in his book, Leap Over a Wall, defines the role of a priest in this way. A priest presents a person to God, or God to a person. A priest makes the God connection visible, embarrassingly forgetful of the God who saves us, and easily distracted from the God who is with us. We need priests to remind us of God, to confront us of God, and we need a lot of them. God, knowing our need, put us in a kingdom of priests. Being a priest is not about power or status, but about serving God and helping to connect people to Him. By connecting people with God and helping them to draw closer to Him, we are fulfilling our priestly role. We were chosen to be different by being one part of a royal priesthood. We are also a holy nation. Our residency is in heaven, not here on earth. One of the best things about America is the amount of freedom that we have here. We can do close to anything we want as long as it is to ourselves. However, as Paul stated in 1 Corinthians 6.12, everything is permissible for me, but not all things are beneficial. Even if the laws of our nation say that a thing is allowed, that does not mean that we as Christians should indulge in it. We must remember that we are first citizens of the holy kingdom of God, and second, citizens of an earthly kingdom. The inability of Israel to remember this severely hindered her power as the people of God. She forgot that she was a holy nation, and eventually, many of the aspects that made her unique from the other nations of the time were eroded. When we are holy, when we are set apart, we stand out as different. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. I think we all know in our minds that we are God's people, but I hope that the magnitude of the amazing gift that God has given us would not lose its impact with our familiarity towards the concept. God rescued us, he pulled us from the clutches of death and despair, and gave us hope by sending Jesus to die for us. We are his possession. Too often we conflate free, 
with cheap. This was something I was thinking about last week on Memorial Day. It is said that freedom is not free, but for many of us, that is not the case. We were given freedom because of the sacrifices of others. Freedom's freeness for many of us does not make it any less valuable. On the contrary, it is a gift that should be dearly cherished. In the same way, the freedom that we now have in Christ should be the most important and valuable thing that we, we have, even though we received it freely. As we near the end of the verse, the focus shifts from how we are different to why we are different and what our difference means in the world. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The verb, here translated as proclaim, means to tell out, to advertise. We as Christians should be living advertisements for the peace, hope, and love found only in Jesus. This can be a daunting task. Many of us think that we are not good enough. We are right. None of us can, by our own strength, draw people out of darkness. We are like the moon. All that we can do is reflect the light and glory of the sun. Trying to draw people out of sin and darkness using our own power is as ludicrous as the moon trying to shine on its own. Only through imitating and reflecting the words and actions of Jesus can we shine and be a beacon of hope for all of those still living in darkness. God's marvelous light. As I was reading this verse, the word marvelous stood out to me. Often the true meaning of words can be watered down over time. Look at the word awesome, for example. The word's original meaning uh, describes something that inspires awe. Awe being a feeling of reverential respect mixed with strong fear or wonder. Now we use it as a synonym for good. In a similar way, the word marvelous's definition has been watered down. And this is important. If we do not understand the tr true meaning of words, we will miss out on so much depth. To marvel means to be filled with wonder or astonishment. How often do we truly marvel at God's light and salvation? Do we portray how wonderful and astonishingly good God's light is to the world? As believers, we are already in the marvelous light of God. I fear that often we shut our eyes and deny that fact. Too often we think of Christianity as an almost work-based religion. I'm in the darkness right now, but someday, when I work hard enough, when I'm charitable enough, then I'll be in God's light. No, this verse speaks against that. He called us, past tense, into his light already, and we can experience this light whenever we turn our eyes from whatever is happening to God. Thinking about being in God's light recalls a scene I've read in The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis, the final book in his Narnia series. At this moment in the story, Narnia has passed away, and the children find themselves in another realm, ruled by Aslan. It is a bright and beautiful place. But a group of dwarves, who earlier on in the book decided to be selfish and only look out for their own needs, are sitting huddled together with a discontented look on their faces. This is surprising to all of the children. As the children approach them, the dwarves tell them uh, to take care not to bump into them. To their astonishment, the children realize that the dwarves think that they are in a, in a dark and hopeless place of their, or in, they are in utter darkness in a dirty stable. They have blinded themselves to truth and light 
by leaning on their own understanding. When, if they would simply open their eyes to the truth, they would recognize the beauty all around them. By attempting to be self-sufficient, they've rejected the blessings and mercy of God. Lucy is distressed by the dwarves' condition and asks Aslan to help them to see. Aslan responds to Lucy by saying, I will show you what I can and cannot do. He starts off by growling at them in order to make them realize his presence. The dwarves, however, talk amongst themselves and insist that the noise was somehow created by some sort of machine. Next, Aslan creates a feast to appear all around the dwarves of all of the most delectable foods and richest of wine. The dwarves, however, convince themselves that all they are eating is hay and dirty water. Like the dwarves, it can be tempting to retreat into the safety of ourselves in our own plans. But even the best plans that we have for ourselves do not come close to the joy and hope that comes from a belief in God's plan. And when we look to create our own light, we miss the marvelous light of God all around us. When looking at a particular verse and trying to glean some wisdom from it, it is important to look at the surrounding text in order to truly understand the context. In this verse, that is especially true as it begins with the word, but. It's the continuation of a thought. If we don't understand the beginning, we are not going to be able to correctly extrapolate what this verse is trying to teach us, who it is talking to, and what the context is. As we look to the context, we understand even more clearly how we were chosen to be different. The previous verses leading up to 1 Peter 2.9 are basically saying, if you disobey God, you will stumble. Some people will choose to follow what is wrong, and God knew what they would choose. But we as Christians are chosen by God so that we can give him glory. We are a chosen race, and then it goes on. This verse is drawing a sharp contrast between unbelievers and believers, the vessels made for glory and the vessels made for destruction. When we go back to the original language, Koine Greek, this sharp contrast is clear. The beginning of the verse in Greek is haimes de genos eklekton. The de, which means however, is not the strongest adversative, a word that shows opposition between two things. But when paired with haimes, which means but you, the combination of the two creates a sharp difference. The Greek aside, my question is, how different are we in our day-to-day -day lives? Can all the world see a sharp, clear difference between us as Christians and those who shun God? I'm still working on trying to be more intentional about sharing my faith. At this point, I often don't have the confidence to just go up to someone and share the gospel with them. But it has been amazing to see how God can work even through that and give me opportunities to share the gospel with people anyways. In my karate class, people notice that I don't act the same way as other students who gossip, swear, and make inappropriate jokes. One day after karate, some of my classmates asked me why that was. They knew something was different about me, but couldn't pinpoint what it was. This gave me the incredible opportunity to tell them that I am a Christian. While I don't know the exact effect my actions and words will have on them, I hope that I may have planted a seed of truth in their lives. And this is just one small example of how God is able to work through our differences to bring people to him. What would happen if we embraced our unique status as God's chosen people, as his holy priests? What would that look like? What would that look like when we are interacting with coworkers, 
What would that look like when we are interacting with family members that we don't get along with? What effect on the world could you have if you remembered your chosen status as God's royal priest, even in the most mundane of circumstances? While you were checking out at the grocery store, emptying the dishwasher, doing a friend a favor for the second time this week. This was something Brother Lawrence, a monk from Paris, France in 1614, practiced all throughout his life. If you don't know who he was, you might think that this faithful man was known for running into a burning building and rescuing orphans, or maybe being martyred for his faith. But neither of these are true. He was simply a man who sought to experience God's presence in the lowliest and most mundane tasks. His book, The Practice of the Presence of God, is all about how he experienced God's presence doing things like cobbling, shoe fixing, which was his profession. Brother Lawrence lived a simple life with the glorious perspective of 1 Peter 2.9, proclaiming the excellencies of God while living in his marvelous light. We can live out that same calling. In closing, I hope that the, this look at 1 Peter 2.9 has given you a better glimpse of how you have been chosen to be different. I pray that all of us would be filled with God's hope, the hope that motivates us to boldly live for Christ, for all the world to see.